There are a lot of people who lie and get away with it. Over the North Atlantic, toward the east coast of the United States. President Kennedy died. This week on Inside Jobs, Brian, Gene, and Lee investigate the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. The baby will be returned, I hope, in a short time. We are in contact and nobody is giving up. Hello. On March 1st, 1932, famed aviator Charles Lindbergh heard a noise on the upper floor of his East Amwell, New Jersey home and climbed the stairs to investigate. He found a makeshift ladder, an envelope, and an open window. What he did not find was his 20-month-old son, Charles Lindbergh Jr., whose kidnapping ignited the beginning of a three-year nationwide manhunt for the person or persons who had taken the child. Local police, federal authorities, and private citizens joined the search until eventually German immigrant worker Bruno Richard Hauptmann was arrested and tried on evidence many think was invented or altered to ensure a swift conviction and subsequent execution. Joining me to try to determine who really kidnapped the Lindbergh baby are civilian investigator Gene Fenimore O'Neill, gentlemen, and conspiracy expert Lee Golden. Who stole the eaglet from the eagle's nest? That's the mystery we're going to unravel today, boys. I'm Brian Lane. Welcome to Inside Jobs. Guys, this one is a doozy. So many good Nazi things going on. There's a lot of good Nazi things going on, but uh, I think my favorite is that not only did, did the police solve the case by literally following the money... <laughs> but it also might have been an inside job. Right. And oh, man, animals. This is... Sorry, you finish, Lee, and then I'm going to put my perfect little capper on the whole thing. Oh, I was going to say that also there's evidence that animals ate balls in this investigation. Yeah, this is the conspiracy hat trick, potentially. Nazis, um... inside jobs, and ugly babies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, that kid had some nice curls. Sure did. Curls are sure a, did. Curls are a sign of a genetic deficiency, Brian. Oh, right. Well... You don't read Scientific American. No, I barely know how to read. <laughs> it's weird that you guys pay attention to what I say about these cases at all. You're really just reading those, like, hieroglyphic puzzles from Boy's Life. You're not even reading um, off of, you know, words. I'm mostly doing the Highlights magazine, What's Different in This Picture... Because <laughs> visuals really make sense to me. But in once this you picture, put Goofus and Gallant, oh, once you put Goofus and Gallant in front of Brian, though, he doesn't know which one's the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> they both look like they're having a blast. <laughs> Just boys will be boys. Yeah. Um. So anyway, let's uh, let's get into this. Lucky Lindy. He was basically the most famous person in the world. <laughs> For yep. a good six years or so. Um, and the reason, I mean, it's hard to, I guess, it's hard to understand now, but, you know, the reason that he was so famous is because he flew 
across the Atlantic alone in the spirit of St. Louis. Yeah, that makes no sense in uh, <laughs> contemporary terms. He wasn't even on TV. R- right. They, like, well, he was on the radio and he had one of those old-timey voices. Yes, I flew across the Atlantic. Landed right in Paris in the oh, spirit man. of St. Louis. That was the key to his... being famous back then is to talk like that. Yeah. His anti-Semitism has been termed folksy. <laughs> he was that kind of hero. Yeah, exactly. Um, Basically, think to think in terms of what this accomplishment was, flying a solo mish across the Atlantic. Um, it was basically like the first guy who has a threesome in space will basically be as famous as Lindy was. Right, exactly. Um, but yeah, so he was a pilot. He he was a, a fan of airmail, and he uh, he promoted that as a new a new invention and uh, or a, a, a new development in postal services, and so which was uh, just to drop the mail from the sky. <laughs> it was also a sequel to Airbud, in which uh, the uh, golden retriever became a pilot. And then crashed horribly into the Empire State Building. Man, <laughs> Airbud did it all. <laughs> yeah. But so, uh, I, I mean, it is sort of famous in the history of aviation because when, um, when he eventually did fly, make his solo flight, the airplane itself was not very old. Uh, it, it was, uh, let me think, 24 years old and it was still, you know, there had been flights during World War II, of course, but they weren't very effective in warfare. None more and... than 100 feet. <laughs> right. Uh, and they, they were, you know, they were so exclusive that it wasn't even like a thing that rich people did. It, they were still, uh, airplanes were, were still just scientific anomaly, sort of. Um, they were still regarded were so... as demon machines. Right. right. To get an idea of how difficult it was to fly a plane or be in a plane, people couldn't even say the name Wilbur Wright because it was so difficult, let alone fly the contraption he and his brother Orville invented. Right. Also because they placed a curse on their name, so they were known as the brothers who shall not be named. Also, there wasn't a lot of sky back then, so there weren't very many (laughs) places to fly. And certainly America owned very little of it. Right. Yeah, it was all in black and white, too. Nowadays we so own the see. entire sky. But mm-hmm. uh so this so so this guy uh Raymond Ortig who was this um you know old-timey rich guy, he offered yeah. a prize of $25,000 to the first person who could do a solo flight across the Atlantic. And this was known as the Ortig prize. And so uh you know Lindbergh gathered up some investors to fund this trip and then he did it uh he you know flew across the atlantic landed in paris to crowds like a sea of people um apparently he got off the flight and he was hoisted above the crowd's head for a half hour yeah he did not touch the ground again for a half hour um they carried him back across the Atlantic. <laughs> so he also set the crowd surf record right after the solo <laughs> yeah. flight record. Later taken by Eddie Vedder during the mid nineties. <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, he you know it was this very long flight from New York to Paris. And the movies so- on the flight were not very good back in the day. It was it was actually um, uh, J Edgar Hoover. 
the 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 Leonardo DiCaprio movie, which <laughs> he should have paid closer attention to because it might have helped him in the years to come. Uh, yeah. yeah, it showed the future for him. Um, and they didn't have very good food on the planes. Like they stopped giving out the peanuts because people were allergic to it. Here's right. my question: Why did he do? New York to Paris. Why didn't he just do like Brazil to West Africa? That's it's just a way shorter distance across the Atlantic Ocean. Well, he was specifically uh, trying to win this prize, and yeah. the guy who offered it was a, a French guy. Oh, and they had to land in Paris. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. But so I mean that alone, he flew across the Atlantic, and bam, he is the most famous person in the world. Um. When he came back to the United States. There was a ticker tape parade in New York City, and uh, they say that about half of the population of New York City uh, came out to to watch him, like, in a ticker tape parade. And uh, he continued to tour around the United States, and they say that one in four Americans came out to see him, uh, which... That's, that's a, it's the type of popularity that is just unrivaled, even in the rest of the 20th century. That seems low, though. Well, mm. people were poor, like so there's, it was hard. I mean, what else was there to do back then? It was like you could either be inside and clean or... Right, right, but it was hard bathe. to get around. It was hard to get around in those days because people were so poor, and they were also riddled with tuberculosis. Oh, right. A lot of people were dead back then, so... <laughs> Most people were dead back then. Yeah. Um, but then he started getting these endorsement offers like cigarette companies and whatnot, and he turned them all down. Mm-hmm. Um, so he kind of got this mythic status of someone who is very moralistic. So he achieved this godlike status. He could literally fly. He didn't care about money. Um, and he seemed to be a very moral guy and a lot of people just really looked up to him and it was a, an innocent time of flappers where we thought that we were indestructible, you know, before the, um, before the second war and all that, all that. Yeah. And it, just this, stuff. this sort of humble Midwest guy, but, um, you know, meeting with the president, meeting with presidents of other countries, touring around and just, you know, on the cover of newspapers and just, mm-hmm. just wildly famous the most famous man in america the first time he met the president he drank like 15 dr peppers and he had to pee (laughs) while interviewing him and then the next time he met the president he showed him his butt right but let's put this in context guys back then no one was famous yeah yeah who else there were no famous people in america so once jesus was was... yeah no one had been famous since jesus Yeah. yeah and even he was kind of just like a cult personality you know what i mean yeah, so it was hard to be famous back then, but it was also pretty easy. Mm-hmm. You yeah, just had you, to achieve an, a feat that no human You just had, had to do anything, really, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so he married, and he moved to New Jersey with all of his, his riches. Ooh la la, he, who did he marry? The uh, daughter of one of his investment partners, uh, a Mr. Morrow. Her name was uh, Anne Morrow. Yeah, her name but was or, Anne Morrow. Originally, they said that he was uh, 
kind of courting the the other sister, Elizabeth Morrow. Um, but then Elizabeth Morrow ran off to Europe, I believe, and upon her return, found out that her sister had stolen away her her potential beau. And a lot of people in the the community of fellow Richies. Um, saw this as quite a surprise. And as we get into some of the conspiracy theories, um, the relationship, the sort of love triangle will come back into play. Oh, so he had to marry the shitty sister because medieval law was still in effect back then. And 10 Things I Hate About You was also the most popular movie. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Probably another movie he should have paid attention to on the flight. Yeah. Yeah. It was a long flight. He spent most of it in the bathroom. (laughs) <laughs> yeah he was if you know what i mean he he'd like tied a string to the controls and led it back to the bathroom where he kept the door cracked so he could keep an eye on things yeah he didn't even fly that much of the flight yeah the in-flight movie was that uh jimmy stewart movie about him the so. spirit of st louis <laughs> he was like this movie sucks <laughs> Uh man, if you sucks. if you watch that movie, like the tensest parts in the in the in the flight, Jimmy Stewart is like rolling. His head is kind of rolling on his neck, and his eyes are getting getting yeah. heavy. And it's like, oh, what? I better pay attention. Uh, yeah, and that's Jimmy it. Like Stewart that is the very, tension. Yeah. Well, Charles Lindbergh had a very heavy head. It was bigger than most of his body. Well, that's also right. helped his fame because you can see him in in a large crowd. Yeah, that movie, his performance in that movie is basically me in all of my college science classes, just like trying really hard to stay awake <laughs> during some boring ass shit. And then later he had his Asian friend do all of his homework like I did. <laughs> True story. March 1st, 1932. The Lindbergh family was in East Amwell, New Jersey. And this is where they had this home, this house that was being built. Uh, mo- uh, they usually only visited the house on weekends, but this was a mm-hmm. Tuesday, and uh, th- during the week they would usually stay in Englewood, New Jersey, where um they would uh, gym tan laundry. <laughs> what? <Yeah. laughs> That's the the most popular New Jersey activity Lee, is to GTL. Have, Lee, you don't have to explain that reference to anyone but Brian. Everybody knows <laughs> what GTL is. Brian doesn't even know what tanning is because he never goes outside. Yeah. I have rickets. Brian doesn't even know what TV is. He still thinks that Charles Lindbergh is the most famous man in America. (laughs) Right. Well, sorry. Um, (laughs) But, uh, the, the, yeah, so during the week, the family mostly spent their time in Inglewood, New Jersey, where, uh, 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 Mrs. Lindbergh had, uh, her family home. But little baby Lindbergh, Charles A. Lindbergh Jr., who was 20 months old, uh, was feeling ill and she did not want to travel. So she convinced Charles and their various servants to, uh, stay in East Amwell for the night. And he was supposed to have some speaking engagement earlier in the night that he's, in New York he, City. Yeah. And he missed it, right? Yeah. He, he was scheduled to, he, cause I guess this is part of how he, he got so rich at the time. He would go on speaking engagements where he would talk about aviation and, and promote, aviation causes uh and he claimed later that he'd plumb forgotten that he had this uh this engagement uh out in new york to speak and he got got drunk off plum wine and plum forgot (laughs) and his speeches were basically just him going and then i went 
for three hours. Yeah. It was like Wait, that scene in Return of the Jedi. <laughs> it was basically that scene in Return of the Jedi where C3PO explains the first two movies like Chichibidi Chutu to all the Ewoks. Pretty much that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh so yeah, so he stayed in for the night. The whole family's at home. They had uh, a nurse with them who uh put baby Lindy to sleep upstairs. Hello, nurse. <laughs> Put baby Lindy to sleep and um, uh, clothes pinned him into his blanket so that he wouldn't move around because, like I said, uh, he was feeling ill. And in the family, pin him just to the bed. Pin, yeah, pin, the, pin him into the into the blankets. Yeah, the Lindbergh baby was into some freaky stuff. He'd be like, "Yeah, nurse, pin me down." Oh, he was yeah. at that age when a child just wants to get nude. <laughs> yeah, and be dominated. <laughs> um. So, uh, so yeah, so at one point, Lindbergh hears a noise, but he doesn't do anything. He, he dismisses it and, uh, just continues reading in his study. His wife goes up to take a, take a shower. To take a uh, shit. <laughs> I mean, they dressed up there. They had to agree on a story when they eventually called the cops. Right. And they decided to dress that one up by saying instead of taking a shit, she was bathing. Because uh, ladies don't <laughs> shit. No police officer would believe that alibi. Well, at yeah. that time, in the 1930s, uh, we had yet to learn that women actually do shit. Right. Yeah, we also thought they peed out of their butts. Very primitive time. Yeah. So she was in the shower, and the nurse went in to check on the baby, and he was not in his crib. So she waited until uh, Mrs. Lindbergh came out of the restroom or the bathroom and said, do you have the baby? She didn't. So they called Charles Lindbergh, who went up to the room, and what he found was no baby. The window was open. There was an envelope on the dresser. Mm-hmm. And when they looked outside... From the baby. <laughs> I'm out of here, squares. <laughs> I'm going to go find nurses to do other, other places. I, I'm going to go form a band. I've been listening to a lot of Velvet Underground. <laughs> Uh, he goes outside and he finds this sort of. Oh, he mid- grabs his rifle too. Come well, on, yeah, back he to the grabs drama his here. Rifle, um, which you know, if you think about it today, with Obama taking all our guns, yeah, he was... wouldn't have been able to do it, and subsequently find the kidnapper and save his son. So it was one of those like big bear shooting orange rifles that you get for your Xbox, though. So it wasn't really going to do anything. But if right. he had, he, if he was allowed to have more rifles back then, who, the kidnapper would have been discouraged from taking the baby. Right. Yeah. He could have shot that note until the baby came back. Lindbergh was mostly famous for the Spirit of St. Louis flight, but he was also famous for having the high score in Buck Hunter. So, <laughs> you know, it was right there. Okay, well now his fame makes a little more sense. <laughs> yeah. So oh, wait, he, he was ASS? Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, outside the window to baby Lindy's, uh, room, uh, Lindbergh found this makeshift ladder. And that's how it's always described in all of the literature. Makeshift. 
but it's I think it's more accurately described as home collapsible. It's like a collapsible ladder too. It's in three distinct segments, I believe, that kind of collapse into themselves. The kid, right. The it, kidnapper basically built the ladder himself out of wood that he chopped down in uh, the Lindbergh's yard. Right. That night. Uh, it, it's which it turns out that was the sound that Lindbergh had heard the whole night. <laughs> was hours of construction. <laughs> Well, that was just a tree falling down in the neighbor's yard. <laughs> a lot of wind out there. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so they found this ladder in three parts. and uh, It was the only window that didn't latch in the house. All the other windows latched. How um, convenient. Exactly. And they were having it repaired in three weeks, I believe. It's because everything just took way slower. Yeah. Well, there was only one repair guy back then. In the country. In the whole country. <laughs> And he was also the president. So. <laughs> <laughs> it was <laughs> Barack Obama was the only handyman in the entire country. He won the election by repairing a toilet. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, we got to get that guy in the White House. Well, those government toilets are like a thousand dollars each, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Government screws. Mm-hmm. Um, government screws all of us, Brian. That's what we're uncovering in every episode. Yeah, seriously. Oh my god, the rabbit hole. Will it ever stop? Actually, it's not a rabbit hole in this episode. It's a shallow grave. <laughs> oh gosh. Spoiler uh, alert. So, spoiler alert. So who knew that they were going to be there that weekend? Who knew that that was going to be the only window that wasn't working? Well, Lindbergh knew. His His oh. wife knew. And his the wife was a bit knew. of a blabbermouth, let's be real. She yeah. was a woman. <laughs> Barack Obama knew, that's for sure. Yeah, Yeah. well, he was doing all those repairs. He overheard a lot of things. Exactly. Um, and uh, the nurse knew, and then the butler knew, which, in my research, it seems that the butler's only duty was to look after the Lindbergh's dog. Like, they keep describing his, him as being responsible for the dog. So he was and basically... the Batcave. So he's basically the dog's butler. <laughs> yeah. Because he's my dog's butler. <laughs> he was my cocaine. Um, but yeah, so this they, they also had a dog. I forgot to mention that earlier. They also had a dog. The dog did not bark the entire time. Yes. Awesome. They named the dog Indiana. So the dog might have been in on it. So they called the police. The police came. They start this huge search. Uh, Norman Schwarzkopf Sr. came, the father of the guy who would be the commander of all Allied forces during the first Iraq war. Who uh, coincidentally recently passed away, taking his secrets to the grave. (laughs) And uh, also the future head of the OSS, Office of Strategic Services, which would later turn into the CIA. He was there at the scene of the crime that night, too. Right, and uh, J. Edgar Hoover eventually got involved uh, as part of the fledgling FBI once Congress, two days after the kidnapping, passed the Lindbergh Law, which made kidnapping a federal crime. Which made kidnapping the Lindbergh baby a federal crime. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they were like, man, we should have thought of this earlier. It might have dissuaded people. (laughs) Well, remember in a previous episode, we found out that the head of the FBI has to be a baby? We found that oh, out during right. the Watergate episode. So I think that Hoover got rid of the baby because they knew that he was going to be the new head of the Bureau of Investigation, later to be the FBI. Right. right. Oh, man. God. And he was going to rename it the Federal Baby Institute. <laughs> <laughs> 
female baby inspector. <laughs> okay, that's really inappropriate. Yeah, I didn't mean it to be pedophilic, yeah. but I guess it was. And you cannot edit that out. That is staying. No, I'm that is going. No, that's not fair. It's not fair to our fans, or it's not fair to me. It's not fair to it, Lee said something really inappropriate in the last episode and you didn't edit it out. It's not fair to Agent Scully, who is the primary federal baby inspector during the X-Files era. Yeah. Uh, so it's a huge manhunt, and immediately the press is on it. Uh, I've probably made this joke in previous episodes, but Tommy Lee Jones barked about every type of house they should search for the kidnappers. <laughs> Lee, you have not made that joke before. You should not have prefaced it. Oh, okay. It was, it was great. Well, they searched every dog house, barn house, whore house, something house. <laughs> Hen house. Yeah. Baby house. Baby. No, they didn't check the baby houses, which was a pretty big oversight in Red <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Although later it turned out to not be a mistake. Um, so, yeah, uh, uh, civilian investigators get in on this. Boy Scouts were uh, searching New Jersey. Uh, one statistic that I heard was that a million Boy Scouts got involved. Um, but none of them were gay, so, you know, we'll see. <laughs> and big surprise, they, just sat they didn't around, find anything. Yeah, they just sat around tying knots and shit. They did a really good square knot. Yeah, um, they uh, they built some, uh, what are those things called, Pinewood Derby cars. They helped old people across the streets. Right, they sold popcorn because the Girl Scouts had already cornered the cookie market. Some got but- molested by their scout leaders. Let's just say all. All did. <laughs> uh, but so, yeah, so there's this very huge search, and it's in all the papers. Apparently, a newspaper production went up by 20% during this period of time uh, mm-hmm. because people just had to know. what It was Who is one of the... Gabbo? God, we killed you killed Brian again, Gene. <laughs> Gabo coincidentally came out right around this time, and so they think that people weren't actually looking into the Lindbergh case, but uh they were just really curious who Gabo yeah, was gonna turn Lindbergh, out to be. The Lindbergh baby story got buried. Yeah. That's why he well, was never Gabo, found. Gabo was trending all night long. <laughs> uh make Gabo smile. Um I- Get back to the case, Lane. Yeah, so Minkin, H.L. Minkin, famous uh, famous muckraking, or not muckraking, I guess, just famous asshole newspaper yeah, writer. Yeah, famous <laughs> Jewish muckraker. <laughs> um, <laughs> called, called, the, uh, called the whole situation the biggest story since the resurrection. And uh, it was basically like that, because like, like we said, and kind of reminds me of the Lincoln case, where John Wilkes Booth, one of the most famous men in the country... The Lincoln lawyer case, to clarify. Right. Was suddenly suddenly involved in also this huge, violent, um, you know, crime that everybody was interested in. So it was just everything that the press wanted. And they hounded the Lindberghs. They were, you know, came out to New Jersey. And like we'd said previous um, to this, Lindbergh was known for being a really humble, modest, moralistic guy uh, mm-hmm. who didn't. For all the fame that he accrued, he he didn't really pursue it and kind of shied away from the limelight. Um, so it was n- – not only was he going through the fact that his son was missing, a baby, 
Uh, but he was also dealing with this unwanted fame from all of his exploits flying and um, playing Buck Hunter. <laughs> he didn't uh, even, he really... yeah, he didn't even use all, parlay all this new attention into promoting his furniture store, right? Or promoting that crossover between MTV's Jersey Shore and MTV's Cribs that he was promoting for the next day's shoot. <laughs> yeah, he was actually advised by Paramount executives to maybe shy away from mentioning that. Mentioning um, Cribs or New Jersey. So, so yeah, so it's this huge search. And then the, this is where it gets like, it, it just becomes bizarre to me. Yeah. Um, this Such a Bronx, circus. Yeah, this Bronx retired school teacher named John F. Condon wrote a letter uh, saying that he would do anything in his power to help out the Lindberghs, and he put up $1,000 of his own money, which, you know, back then, that was like a billion dollars, to to try to, uh, you know, convince people to offer information about the case. And we should clarify that it was a $50,000 ransom that was demanded in the note that was uh, left for Lindbergh. And Lindbergh actually ordered the note not be opened until the investigators arrived. Right. I I, I think uh, that's actually a good point. We should maybe even go back and read the letter because the letter is very interesting. Sort of like as we talked about in the Jack the Ripper case, there are very specific misspellings and uh, type of weird grammar is used. So uh, I have it right here. Does Does anybody else want to read it? Or should I? I'll just read the letter. <clears throat> Re- read it. Do the voice. Do the voice. Do the voice. What sort of voice? Uh, I'll just do a weird fey German. <laughs> you mean your voice? <laughs> <laughs> Dear sir, have 50,000 ready, 25,000 in $20 bills, 15,000 in $10 bills, and 10,000 in $5 bills. After two to four days, we will inform you where to deliver the money. We warn you for making anything public or for notifying the police. The child is in good care. Indication for all letters are signature and three holes. <laughs> and that thing at the at No the end, funny stuff. <laughs> no funny stuff. Yeah, oh, I'm pretty sure. Your, oh, if we cut off your baby's Johnson. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure these were just the guys from uh, Big Lebowski, right? The <laughs> yeah. Autobahn guys, the or whatever. nihilists. And there was a small yeah. baby toe. Yeah. But they picked they picked John F. Condon, aka Jaffsey, to be the intermediate. intermediate the, the, that's all folks. Intermediate <laughs> between the kidnappers and the Lindberghs because he was a good man. And thorough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he had the yeah. same name as Charles Lindbergh. <laughs> yeah, coitus. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so there's this interesting signal symbol that either I'll put up on the notes or you can look up yourself. And it's like a red circle with two blue sort of Venn diagram circles interlocking mm-hmm. with the red right. circle in between. And then three holes right across, one in the center and two at either side. And that was supposedly the secret sig- symbol that the kidnappers would send to Condon or Lindbergh if they ever wanted to get in touch so that they could know that it was a real letter and not just some jerk writing a fake uh, ransom note. And years later, they say that they found the machine that actually produced this code sometime in the 1950s. It was sent to some investigator. So... That will play in later as we get into the conspiracy theories. 
So, uh, Jaffsy is in touch with the kidnappers, and, and they work out a deal. Bring the $50,000. To a creepy cemetery. To a creepy cemetery. And there you will find out information. Once we get the money, you will find out information about where the baby is. Spooky information. Um, and uh, at the beginning of that letter, they said, hold a flashlight under your chin and read this note into the mirror for extra chills. Yeah, for your submission to the Midnight Society, <laughs> the Lindbergh kidnapping in search of episode. So, uh, so Jeff C or, uh, John F. Condon, his initials are JFC, uh, C, and he, he went by Jaff C. Uh, that was his nickname, which is kind of a phonetic pron- pronunciation of this. Pretty uh, rad. Yeah, it is <laughs> yeah. pretty rad. He yeah. also skateboarded too. Um, what would your he, guys name? I, I would be Efo, which is just terrible. Or <laughs> it sounds my, like a band. Sounds like a band from the 80s. My initials are uh, BWL, which is very close to Bowel. <laughs> <laughs> yes! That is your new nickname. You better hope that doesn't stick. <laughs> Mine are J- J-E-W. <laughs> I, I Did just, you just barf? I just got that. I just got that. <laughs> Oh, I spit my water back into my glass, but I'm still going to drink it. Mm. Oh, it looks gross. Ew, grody. That may- You're basically making out with yourself. And you are a dude. <laughs> Finally, Hence I figured out gay. a way. <laughs> <laughs> so next, you're just going to put your dick into your drink and then drink it. <laughs> so you could finally ask your own D. Yeah. <laughs> so Jaffsy was a former boxer, and he knew this other boxer. Barbara Boxer. <laughs> so he and Barbara Boxer were like, okay, we'll go to the cemetery to meet this guy and hand off the, the money. Mm-hmm. And uh, what the cops uh, figured out was that, hey, the let's get these gold certificates instead of uh, dollars. A because, form of currency that was about to go out of circulation. Yeah, they, they knew it was about to go out of circulation. And the deal was you would have to take your certificates and exchange them. Uh, with the federal government. Um, but a- on top of that, not only would that make them more rare and then subsequently, you know, not accepted as, as currency, but it was much easier to track the, um, serial numbers on these bills. So they gathered $50,000 in gold certificates and Jaffsey and Barbara Boxer went to the cemetery at night. <laughs> They waited around for a while, and then this guy came out who Jaffsy said had weird thumbs. Weird and spo- thumbs. Yeah, he had said he had a gr- growth on his thumb. He had fingers for thumbs. <laughs> <laughs> and he also spoke with a German accent. They handed him the money. Oh, and he said he called him called himself John. They Cemetery the John. Car down to fifteen mph. <laughs> and threw the money over the bridge. Barbara Boxer jumped out with the Uzi. Um, no, no. So, so John spoke with a German accent, had weird thumbs. He he got the money from Jaffsy and Barbara Boxer, and then he gave them an envelope, which he claimed had information about where the baby was. But it just had John Goodman's underwear. <laughs> <laughs> the whites. 
<laughs> um, no, the so John left, and because of Lindbergh's secrecy and his control over the case, he hadn't informed the cops of where the deal would be. So no cops were on hand, and no federal investigators either to to track John after he left the cemetery. So and we the, should emphasize that how much control he took over the investigation. He he really leveraged his fame and cult personality status to take complete control over the investigation. And the FBI said they wanted to help, and he he denied their help. And uh, some say he kind of shot himself in the foot by not uh, I, cooperating. I mean, if you look at it, like, who the fuck else other than, like, the most famous person in America could just be like, hey, cops. This random dude from New York is going to help out. He's going to be my main point guy on this case. Don't worry. I trust him. He's basically as good as you guys. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, it just doesn't make any sense except for the fact that Lindbergh was throwing his weight around. Yeah. Um. So John, Cemetery John, as he became to, came to be known later, uh, left the cemetery and was never seen again. Um. By those guys. <laughs> well, yeah, by those guys. However, the note said that uh, the baby was in a boat. But it was spelled Boad, B-O-A-D. Yeah, and uh, it it was called the Nelly at Martha's Vineyard. Mm -hmm. And so they, Lindbergh flew up there because he was a pilot. And to see uh? if he could see the baby from up there. <laughs> yeah, he needed a better perspective on the case. Um, and so he went up there and, uh, they could not find this boat. It was not at Martha's Vineyard. And a couple days later, they realized they'd been fooled. And Lindbergh admitted that it was, you know, the baby was gone and so was the money. And um, they finally fixed the latch on the window that night. <laughs> so let's, let's have the sort of sad detail and then we'll take a break. But okay. about a month later, on May 12th, 1932... A guy needed to pee. <laughs> well, all the, everything just says he went out to relieve himself. I'm assuming he was pooping. Oh, okay. Uh, but he was a truck driver. He also driver. could have been buzzing one out. <laughs> <laughs> he was looking for Brian's porn in the woods that Brian had left out there. Yeah, he was looking for the porn in the washing machine. <laughs> In the woods. Uh, his name is <laughs> William Allen. He was a truck driver. And he was driving. He was not five miles away from the Lindbergh's East Amwell house. And he went into the woods to jack off. And he looked <laughs> over. And there's At what some... he was climaxing on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> oh, that's awful. Okay, let's just be factually accurate. He got out to pee. Okay. He was peeing in the woods. And he looked over and he saw a weird shape in the ground. And when he took a closer look, and when he it was it. <laughs> it was uh, the remains of of something human. So he called the cops. They came out. They dug it up, and it was Charles Lindbergh Jr. The Blair Witch. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the the baby was dead, and they figured that he had been dead since the night of the kidnapping. They found a, a, like a little hole in one side of his skull and then like a large fracture on the other side of the skull. Some people thought that he might have fallen off of the ladder right as they were uh, taking him down. As the baby right. was trying to escape, he fell down the ladder. But, uh, right. but yeah, his, parts of his body had been eaten off by animals and 
It was it was terrifying. This is uh you know, the baby had been dead the whole time, the search was for nothing, they had given away the fifty thousand dollars to kidnappers that they couldn't trace. And, and how far was this from the Lindbergh house? Less than five miles. And uh so that's kind of that's kind of where the case ended for two years. So but we're that gonna was... take a little break. And when we come back, we will we will find out who the cops went after. Uh, Hoffman drove into my station and pulled up to an apple pump and asked for five gallons of gas. I identified Bruno Richard Hoffman. I identified Bruno Richard Hoffman. Bruno Richard Hoffman was the man who came to the Sheridan Theater and handed me one of the $5 ransom bills. So the baby is dead. The money is gone. The kidnappers are unknown. John Condon is dressing up like a lady wearing a beard. <laughs> John Condon, who's like, he's up there. He's an old man, mm-hmm. uh, was still investigating the case, even as Lindbergh and the Lindbergh family sort of gave up hope. And uh, even the, the cops really were standing around scratching their heads. Uh, mm-hmm. Condon Jaffsey kept investigating by dressing up as a woman, <laughs> even though he had <laughs> facial hair and meeting informants. He was uh, like, uh, yeah, I need it for the, uh, investigation. <laughs> <laughs> he was working very closely with J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah. Right, exactly. That's how he earned his trust, is to be a bearded woman. Um, but yeah, so, so it was actually years that uh about two and a half years that there were basically no leads no successful leads in the case a lot of hoaxes and weird stuff being sent in yeah and they actually investigated some of the Lindbergh staff uh, violet sharp who after numerous investigate or uh, interrogations took her own life by swallowing yeah. cyanide yeah potassium cyanide seems what a way to go um, but back but, then, the uh, FDA recommended a certain amount of cyanide a day in everything, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, so she was already she had already adapted herself to it, and yeah. so it took her months to die. They didn't know it was poison. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah. So they were on. You know, the police were still looking out for these gold certificates, uh, which that are that made... let you go into Willy Wonka's factory. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were like, "Wow, we gave him." 50,000 trips to Willy Wonka's yeah. factory. <laughs> they, Let's just look for the fattest diabetic around. They bumped down the Lindbergh case in priority. First first and foremost was finding those golden tickets. <laughs> <laughs> so on May 1st, 1933, this is already over a year after the case, uh, after, after Lindbergh's baby was kidnapped, uh, the gold certificates were were no longer legal tender. And there were some reports of people exchanging or making large purchases with the gold certificates, but they they never tracked them down. Mm-hmm. Um, it there took was, actually um, sorry so- someone named J.J. Uh, J. Faulkner or something like that. Mm-hmm. They they felt there was a form you had to fill out if you were cashing these in, and they they uh, found some of the money with uh, um, uh, a name on the forum that was, I think, J.J. Faulkner, um, and they never it said found out Seymour who that was. Butts. <laughs> yeah, IP <laughs> Freely, <laughs> Jack uh, Mehoff. Yeah, but that that never really led to led to anything, and it took 
uh, over a year over a year later uh, for for any promising leads to to occur. And so it, there was a gas station in Upper uh, Upper Manhattan where a gentleman came to purchase 98 cents of gasoline and he paid with a $10 gold certificate. And the uh, gas station attendant said that he was acting a little suspicious and he wasn't sure if the bank would uh, would take the certificate. So he wrote down the gentleman's uh, license. Yeah, he was acting on... really suspicious because he was filling up the spirit of St. Louis at a gas station. <laughs> He was constantly raking his mustache. Yeah. And he was dressed as a woman. Dressed um, as Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> trying to keep yeah, trying to keep his eyes open. Uh so he wrote down the, the license and he and he called the cops. The cops went to investigate this and they knocked on the door in the Bronx of a certain Bruno Richard Hauptman. Man a German immigrant and sometime carpenter with a little bit of a record back in his native Germany. They started looking through the house. But then again, carpenters who get arrested, they usually turn out pretty well, like Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty solid record uh, streak right there. Yeah, two. <laughs> and the license that he wrote down was a vanity plate that uh, said Lindbergh kidnap without vowels. <laughs> <laughs> Real suspicious. <laughs> Drop that baby. <laughs> Collapsible ladder. <laughs> Kidnapped baby on board. <laughs> yeah. Kidnapped baby on board. Ooh, uh, one day the military will have to kidnap a baby to pay for a battleship. My son <laughs> is Charles Lindbergh's son at so-and-so middle school. <laughs> uh, Obama 08. <laughs> um so they the police looked through the house and they found some very suspicious evidence babies everywhere um no they found gold certificates everywhere uh in addition to a handgun and the wood in the attic seemed to match the wood of the collapsible ladder that they had found yeah. uh, at the Lindbergh house. They brought in an expert who determined that both pieces of wood came from trees. A wood expert. <laughs> <laughs> he was an expert in wood, different types of wood. Yeah. Boners. Like, uh, you know, there's a, big di there's a big difference between the kind of boner you have talking about the Lindbergh kidnapping yeah. and the kind of boner you have talking about the 9-11 conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, there's a big difference between Woody and Cheers and Woody and Toy Story. Yeah. He could look at your wood and just... Suck you dry. <laughs> That's not even a pun. What are you talking about? He's talking about inside blowjobs, obviously. <laughs> so they arrested Hauptman, and uh, it was huge news. There had been no real breaks in the case. There had been years. no other news back then. Yeah. Right. What were, yeah. Do you think Lindbergh was going to fly across the Atlantic again? No, he yeah, was sad. Newspapers were waiting for another transatlantic flight, or they were all just going to go under. <laughs> because right. nothing happened back then. So, Hauptmann was arrested, and this is what became the trial of the century. Until um, they tried King Kong for killing all those people. Yeah. Right. Again, there had been no other trials, so this was <laughs> yeah. not that hard to become the trial of the century. This was the Man, first trial of the century. 
We've studied so many crimes of centuries. What that was? <laughs> was there more to that? <laughs> no, that's it. Oh, that's okay. it. We've studied so many. Oh, okay, okay. Like everything seems to be like the trial of the century or the crime of the century. Let's edit people... that to make it sound more profound and not as boring. right. Do you, like is, do people think that every year is like a century or something? Because it seems like every year there's a trial of the century and we have to solve it. Yeah, it seems like our criteria for trial of the century should be elevated a bit. That it has to be the trial of the century that it's in. I think of the century is just a synonym for most recent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like Casey Anthony. Wow. That yeah. will never be topped. But you don't want a headline of just most recent trial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Hauptman was... Uh was arrested and he had what they found was that he had about a third of the of the ransom money secreted away in his house Mm -hmm. the wood matched and he was a german immigrant and as we said some of the some of the writing writings in the in the ransom notes seemed to reflect um someone with a poor grasp of english uh coming from the german as well as the fact that cemetery john spoke with a german accent and, and they, had weird thumbs. They matched up the handwriting to the liner notes of Autobahn's album. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they they went to trial, they, and Hauptmann professed his innocence the entire time. They he, offered him numerous deals to commute his uh, his murder sentence. I mean, I, I mean his uh, death sentence, and uh, yet he refused. Said I, I didn't do it. It was this guy Isadora Fish, who was a, a former business partner of me, who had this money. He died. I found it, and uh, since he owed me money, I just started using it. Because yeah, we, it's it's the classic German uh, German excuse. He was German, so he blamed his Jewish friend exactly and then for took stealing all money. money and <laughs> framing him for crimes he it, never committed. It's the classic child's excuse. I found the money. Is you know, that a classic? Yeah, you know, like when you would steal change from uh, your parents, like change jar or like the change <sighs> thing in the car, and then they would find all your quarters and they would ask you where you got it, and you'd be like, oh yeah, I found it. I didn't have to commit uh, larceny in my family when I was a child, because I didn't have 52 brothers and sisters. Oh, you never stole money from your parents? No. You make me sick, Lee. You stole money <laughs> from your parents, right? My parents are Jews. They count every penny, dude. There's no, there's no latitude. <laughs> there's no room. For... Yeah, there's no room to budge in that. Well, the listeners know what I'm talking about. Yeah, they're on your side. Let's let's take a second for them to c- calm down from the deafening laughter. They can't even hear what we're saying right now. They're laughing so hard at my rock solid reference. <laughs> uh, so not wait, I'm... no, not yet. Okay, now we're good. <laughs> Hauptmann had a bit of a criminal record in uh in Germany and so like the funniest thing which about back it to then me... was to not kill any Jews yeah, yeah. that was a crime but uh but it's kind of funny because this guy I was watching this documentary about the case and the guy this guy was like yeah he had a criminal past including extensive use of ladders in his crimes <laughs> yeah I did that too he was the ladder I... bandit. And it's yeah. and it turned out that one time he had used a ladder to climb into the mayor's window and he stole some money. But then the guy also said, and one time he held up two women 
who were pushing a baby in a stroller at the time. And he used a ladder. So, I mean, it's basically adding up to probably guilty at this point. But he finally got popped Uh, for downloading The Spirit of St. Louis on Napster. (laughs) Uh, So... So, yeah, so there there was that. The handwriting was claimed to match. He had a third of the money. This Isidore Frisch, who, who had returned to Germany and left the money with um, Hauptsman, as per his story, was dead, so he couldn't there back was some, him up. There were some eyewitnesses who identified Hauptmann, even though one also identified um, a bouquet of flowers as a lady's hat, I believe. True story. Yeah, and, uh, and Jaffsey, uh uh, went back on his claim of Cemetery John having weird thumbs, and he he claimed that uh, Hauptmann matched Cemetery John, who he had given the ransom money to. Also, they that, moved. Also, they moved uh, the Lindbergh baby's lips like it was talking and going, "Yep, that's the guy who kidnapped me." Okay, I have to go back to sleep. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ! Jesus fucking shit! Jesus was also a famous baby. Woo. Uh, so Hauptmann was convicted and he was sentenced to death. Uh, can you say that like Emperor Palpatine? No, you can. He was sentenced to death. <laughs> Oof. Now I get the full gravity of the situation. <laughs> so yeah, seriously. he was in prison and the governor of New Jersey at the time thought that he might actually be innocent and he was reviewing the case and actually Princeton professors, a group of Princeton professors studied the the trial for him and they came back and said, no, you definitely have to kill this guy. And um, newspapers were offering Hauptmann money like uh, one newspaper, uh, I think it was the Hearst Papers, offered him $90,000 to his wife and young baby to take care of them after he was executed and he uh he turned it down and he said no I'm not guilty I won't uh I won't claim I won't name names because there are no names to name I'm 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 innocent and he was eventually executed on in the electric chair and that was supposedly that however there are still questions about the case what would those questions be, civilian investigator Brian Lane and Eugene O'Neill? <laughs> yeah, let's not bother. Yeah, it's, it was pretty much Hauptman. Bye. Well, well, we know that. Um, well, we know that Lindbergh himself was a a Freemason, so immediately he's involved in some sketchy shit. And B, we also know he was a practical jokester. And something I found out um, while I was in the archives was that Lindbergh had previously played a prank um, for about 20 minutes on his wife, Ann Morrow Lindbergh, that the baby was gone. And he had, like, hid the baby or something. He was like, I don't know where the baby is. I- I'm sorry. I don't know where the baby is. And um, I don't know where that damn baby is, darling. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Cary Grant. Um, was actually um, Lindbergh. Well, Charles Lindbergh. Was Terrence and Philip the father of the Lindbergh baby? <laughs> I don't know why that baby has Alex. <laughs> so they also, he also uh, once pranked this dude and put like kerosene in his canteen and then the guy like was almost died of internal burns. So he was <laughs> always lit like. lit him on fire as a, as a prank. Yeah. yeah he put like a snake. By the Lindbergh. 
He put like a snake in someone's bed who was afraid of snakes, probably Indiana Jones. So one he of the shot theories a guy is that... who was afraid of getting shot. <laughs> yeah. One of the theories is that like he was just trying to pull a more elaborate prank on um his family and himself like was going to sneak back into the house because he came in earlier than he was supposed to and he supposedly snuck up the ladder himself tried to take the baby but then accidentally dropped it was like oh shit and then created and then created this whole kidnapping ruse um as a kind of cover-up and then when um the mob found out about it they uh decided to create a um sort of extortion scheme on the side to try to get some money out of Lindbergh who they knew was sort of helpless with his own guilt man why did he tell the mob about it that was a big mistake well he actually did distribute copies of the note through a guy named uh Rosen i think yeah. um and uh tried to pass it through the underworld to see if they could identify who the kidnapping gang might be. And then Capone said, oh, I can help you figure this out. Just let me out of jail. <laughs> but then he he stole a Hummer and uh, attacked all of uh, San Francisco. Oh, wait, no, that's uh, The Rock. He was always pulling that scam. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, no, there, there are definitely questions about... Uh, some of the evidence that was brought up against Hauptmann because for instance, on the night of the kidnapping, March 1st, 1932, he, he had an alibi to which many other witnesses um, agreed that, or supported. And so he had this alibi that he was nowhere near the, uh, the Lindbergh house. They didn't find any of his fingerprints and they didn't find any of his fingerprints, even on the ladder even in areas where, like, somebody who had either used or um, had crafted the ladder would definitely put their fingerprints. Additionally, um, Cemetery John, when he met uh, Jaffsey in the cemetery, uh, it had been a, a raining earlier, and so it was muddy ground. And they took a cast of one of the footprints, and it was about a size 8. Uh, Hauptmann was much larger than that. Mm-hmm. And so his his footprint just did not match this guy who had collected the money. Yeah, Jaffsey's footprint was also larger than that. But then they realized that the eight was actually in um, women's shoe size. So they think it actually might have been Jaffsey. Right. Well, there are various theories that, that Jaffsey was involved. There's this dude who recently came out and said, I am Charles Lindbergh Jr. And Jaffsey was part of the whole whole thing. Which, like, I, I'm willing to uh, to look into the fact that Hauptmann might have been innocent, but um, there are a lot of people who claim to be the Lindbergh baby, or there have been over the years, and um, it's just insanity. Like, <laughs> like how how would that baby know that it's if the you Lindbergh were kidnapped baby. at 20 months? How would you remember or know anything about the kidnapping? To to subsequently say, oh, yeah, I'm probably that baby. Well, it was probably pretty traumatic. For a 20-month-old? What are I'm... you remembering when you're 20 months old? Oh, man, I'm not in my crib. I'm out in the <laughs> yeah. world. The, the... And being eaten by a fox. Yeah. The, Lin... the Lindbergh <laughs> baby was was also Anastasia, we should, we should note. Well, the baby was probably raised by talking animals. <laughs> like in the Jungle Book. Right. <laughs> and it told him... 
like you know like it showed him newspaper clippings and kind of gave him the backstory and then an ape an ape sang a song i want to be a jew i want to count money like you do but uh yeah okay thank you for that lee um <laughs> you're welcome but uh but yeah the um so Hauptman, there's some questions about his guilt um they found also- uh john condon's phone number sketched on his uh his closet door and they said well how did you get condon's number and he said well i don't really know um but the thing is he didn't own his own phone so he would have had to go somewhere else to uh make any phone calls so you would think he would carry something more transportable than you know the wall um (laughs) and also a it's said that a reporter came out and said yeah hearst was telling us to stir up as much shit as possible so i wrote it on the wall just to like you know have a, a new thing to write about the next day right which is sort of like the jack the ripper case in that the the frenzy over the case was such that the press started to actively interfere with evidence. Um, but the uh, the fact the fa- fact that we said earlier about the fingerprints, Schwarzkopf and his team they buried that information and it never came to trial. They buried which, it with the baby, right? Which well, I actually cremated the baby and then Lindbergh flew and dropped the ashes out the window. Sweet um, over the bosom of the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> But um, but so Lindbergh's behavior after this was, in some ways, understandable, but in other ways, very very confusing. Um, he eventually they had an, he and his family had another uh, son, and they decided to leave. So they snuck a away. A better son. Yeah, a better son. So they snuck that away. That wouldn't get kidnapped so easily. <laughs> yeah, would have fought back. They were worried that this guy, this kid was, you know, better at not getting kidnapped, but not perfect at it. So they moved to England and they lived there for several years, during which time he did work for, um, because he met Kennedy, because everything leads back Joseph, to Kennedy. Joseph Kennedy. Yeah. He met jo- Joseph Kennedy, but everything leads back to the Kennedy assassination. Um, and he was convinced to go investigate the Third Reich's uh, Luftwaffe. Um, at, which is their uh, during- Air Force, of course. Yeah, so he met Goering and he got a medal from straight from Hitler himself. Totally sweet swastika medal. And he um oh, lucky. He, he, be- he began investigating their air force including the uh, Junkers jet and um he passed this information on to American forces. Uh he also went to the Soviet Union and did the same thing. And eventually, when he came back to the United States, he began uh, speaking for America First organizations. And these were isolationist organizations that did not want to get America involved in uh, in World War II. He Although reported Lindbergh, back um, when he was in Russia, in Mother Russia, baby kidnaps you. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh. Oh, Lee's just going to take the breather. rest of the show yeah. off. Yeah, yeah he's just going to take a nap. <laughs> I just that exhausted. I just he's going to leave now. He's going to go out on a high note. <laughs> um, so he, he began giving these speeches that Germany was not our enemy and that we shouldn't let the Jewish lobby take the United States into the war. Uh, he was seen as being you know, anti-Semitic by a lot of folks. Uh, and he certainly was uh, racist in other ways, talking about the supremacy of the white race. That yeah, sort of thing. he was a eugenist, um, you know. Yeah, as... eugenist um, 
which uh, if you if is you it don't eugenist know, eugenist or a eugenicist. It's a he was eu- a supporter of eugenics. He was um, a eugenist. Yeah, because a eugenist a is someone who su- who supports me. <laughs> yeah, so and nobody. Your life. Wow, that was cruel, Lee. I'm I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. I didn't I didn't hear what he said. What did he say? What did that, oh, say, I, what did that fuck say about me? <laughs> you said a eugenist was someone who uh, supports you, and I said, "Oh, you mean no one?" Whoa, motherfucker! You want to take a step back? <laughs> Brian Punchley for me. Thank you. I just gave Banger a high five. <laughs> yeah, you just punched Banger's hand. Okay, back you to guys the are anti eugenicists. Seriously, we got like twenty five minutes. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, so we have twenty five minutes before Brian's plans get canceled on him. <laughs> <laughs> hey, fuck you! I don't even have any plans today. <laughs> anyway, back back to the uh, case. Back so to Lin- the case. So Lindbergh was saying all these things during World War Two. Roosevelt, all know, these uh, true things. All about, these factual things about how America should not get involved in this Jewish war. Yeah, the, our and, shared racial supreme heritage with the with Europe, with white Europe. And, and uh, FDR criticized him, and he sort of, you know, dropped out of – once World War II started, he sort of dropped out of the public eye. And later when he died in the 70s, uh, surprise, it turned out that he had been fucking a lot of women on the side. And he had this sort of bevy of, of, of German women in uh, small towns throughout Bavaria. Mm-hmm. And he had... Including uh, Adolfa Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> he was pretty he much had... like a person rancher. Like, he just kind of, like, just made, like, you know, supreme Lindbergh German uh, babies and kind of just left them there. And uh, after he died, they all came out and were like, hello, 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 and said that they were Lindbergh kids. <laughs> there were seven of them by three different women. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know... Uh, Apparently he basically just crop dusted Germany <laughs> <laughs> with semen. Yeah, he cock dusted it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so there, there, there are people a little, little wilder than some of these other theorists who say that uh, Lindbergh's son, Charles A. Lindbergh Jr., the kidnapped baby, uh, had rickets. Yeah, and was genetically inferior, and so Lindbergh himself organized this kidnapping. With the idea of putting him in an institution, which is actually, to be fair, not that rare for, uh, you know, wealthy individuals to do. do. So, like, the Kennedys did it. Arthur Miller did it. Wait, they arranged Um, for their children to be kidnapped? Well, they didn't arrange for them to be kidnapped, but they did (laughs) definitely put their, uh, uh, you know, uh, what was it? Rose Kennedy and Arthur Miller's son, Daniel Miller, were... uh, both put into homes and sort of never spoken about and tried to, they tried to cover them up from the public's eye. Yeah. Um, and so there are theorists who claim that Charles Lindbergh was trying to do this. However, the kidnapping went wrong. The baby fell from the window and died. And so they just buried it in the woods instead. And he concocted this kidnapping scheme to sort of throw off everyone's, uh, uh, suspicions. And it turned out the baby was just in Palm Springs with friends the whole time. Yeah. No one knows where that baby was on November 22nd, 1963. 
No, it was having a meeting with Studebaker. <laughs> yeah, he's closing <laughs> a deal for Studebaker. He's closing a deal for Studebaker. Um, but, so, but wait, wait, wait. So, so that that's another thing implicating Charles Lindbergh. But as Lee mentioned er, an hour ago, I don't even know. Um, Charles Lindbergh originally courted uh, his eventual wife's sister, Elizabeth. Elizabeth Shue. And sorry, go ahead. Elizabeth Shue. <laughs> yeah. And after she had some adventures in babysitting, <laughs> they think that she hated it so much she decided to kidnap the baby. Right. Um, no, and... but they do think that, you know, maybe she was jealous of her sister and angry at Lindbergh. And because she was privy to that information that nobody else had, that the Lindberghs would be in East Amwell as opposed to Englewood on a Tuesday. And she might have orchestrated the kidnapping out of these sort of jealous, uh, yeah. jealous feelings. The people who worked for her said that in a in a weird maniacal rage, she had killed her own dog. So they they said that she was very unstable. And um, in fact, there was a rule around the the house that uh, she was not to be left alone with the child. So yeah, some people say that uh, it was Elizabeth Shue. See, that's why was... you get a dog butler, <laughs> like the Lindberghs had <laughs> to tend to the dog. It's there to take a final... bite out of crime and babies. <laughs> and then one of my favorite theories, which I think is a little bit crazy, is um, this guy, uh, this guy Eugene Zorn. So, Gene, you probably like that guy. Mm. Oh, sounds like a Eugenist. <laughs> yeah. This Eugenist was reading a magazine in the 60s uh, about the Lindbergh case, and it jogged his memory about something that had happened when he was younger. A man named he... John Knoll was uh, having a conversation with someone that uh, he remembered as Bruno at a public pool. And they were mentioning... Both Germans, and it was in German, so he didn't understand exactly what they were saying. Continue. Mostly probably just talking about weird sex stuff. Yeah. Uh, but the words that he did remember overhearing were that the the man he didn't know was referred to as Bruno, as in Bruno Richard Hauptman. But Bruno it, Richard Hauptman went by Richard Hauptman. Like he Bruno he basically used as his middle name, so Yeah. Uh but also that they kept mentioning words like Englewood. And stolen Lindbergh baby. <laughs> <laughs> Willy but, Wonka golden tickets. <laughs> but so uh Zorn Eugene Zorn uh began investigating the case and when he passed away his son took over and they think that what happened was that these two brothers john and walter knoll who were from the same uh german town as hauptman had worked with hauptman to kidnap the baby and the evidence for this is pretty sketchy but the fact that there were none of hauptman's footprints were or uh fingerprints were found on the latter is attributable, uh, attributed to the fact that there are these other men involved and it was actually their fingerprints. Mm -hmm. And also the fact that one of them, John, is named John and Cemetery John was... It's a very um, rare name in America. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> also called John. But John Knoll also had weird thumbs. They were like discolored and large. And in the one picture... He had what was known as dick fingers. Yeah. Yeah. He was the victim. He was the victim of a cartoon hammer accident early in life. <laughs> <laughs> so there's actually only one picture of him extant that you can see where with his thumbs, and they do look a little bit weird. 
but it's you know again not conclusive. Who is this? John Knoll. John Knoll. John Knoll, weird thumbs guy. Here's the weird. Here's the weird thing. His nickname was Grassy. <laughs> That's terrible. That's so cool. bad. Wait, I don't Ooh. get it. Grassy Knoll. Ah, oh, God. It's even better with the explanation. Yeah, wow. <laughs> it's this even show... better when you get it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so there there are all these theories about who could have done it, but none of them are really conclusive. And Hauptman's guilt is not airtight. And uh, additionally, there's the fact that almost all the evidence against him is circumstantial. So the case has remained a point of interest for, you know, all these years. But dudes... Guys, um, Sheree solved it the other night. Wait, Sheree, just so people know, is uh, Lee's fiance. Right, so I'm balls deep in the archives last night, um, looking yeah, through yeah. old files. <laughs> wink, wink. Give a banger <laughs> yeah. a high five on that one. <laughs> Up top. Um, and she was like, I was mentioning something about how he was anti-Semitic, and she was like, boom, Jews did it. Pissed off at him for being a D about Jews. And I'm like, case closed. It was obviously us. So as you said, I believe in our very first episode that all of the films the that uh, the Jews are responsible for making and all of the assassinations that the Jews are responsible for can be identified because they were the successful ones. Right. So they got away with the baby and they got away with the money. This definitely has all the hallmarks of a Jewish conspiracy. Yeah. Money. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> That's like the most amazing joke I've ever heard. Uh, uh so let's go do before we wrap this up, uh let's go around the table. Gene, the Lindbergh baby kidnapping, conspiracy or not a conspiracy? Uh well if Charles Lindbergh just did it himself, does that constitute a conspiracy? No. Okay. Well I'm gonna say it was an inside job non-conspiracy see i think that's something we need to add now to okay. our to our resolutions is yeah. whether it was an inside job or not then conspiracy or not conspiracy i'm gonna say inside job no conspiracy all right lee inside job uh definitely inside job conspiracy guys i am the Lindbergh baby what? Ah! Yeah. basically my dad was always calling me junior and i was like dad don't call me Junior. And uh, so finally I left. And <laughs> now all the pieces are in place. You are the Lindbergh yep. baby. Wow. I never realized that you were 90 years old. <laughs> yep. And that Charles Lindbergh is Sean Connery. <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to say conspiracy, not an inside job. Okay. Well, who did it then, dude? I... I th I feel like more than one person was involved than just Hauptman. Okay. But I don't necessarily think it was an inside job. I think it was dumb luck that the kidnappers were able to, to get that baby on that particular night and all that stuff. So, And then okay. they just fucked it up. And then they what? And then they just fucked it up. Yeah. Then they just, it was like Keystone Cops. <laughs> it was a Three Stooges episode. They dropped the baby, but that it didn't hit the ground. There was like thirty minutes of juggling before. I think there it was finally... a Three Stooges where they kidnapped the Lindbergh baby. 
That, yeah, that wasn't a very popular one. <laughs> yeah. It came yeah. out right after the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. So. It really killed their career. It was kind of <laughs> like that Spider-Man trailer that came out right after 9-11 that they had to pull from theaters. <laughs> right. Yeah, they had to CGI out the Lindbergh baby <laughs> and replace it with the World Trade Center. Yeah, they took out that scene where the Lindbergh baby makes out with an upside-down Spider-Man. Yeah. Too Which, weird. Too no, weird. Pedo. Did, yeah. How do the physics work on that one, Stan Lee? Yeah. All oh, right. Spider baby, I love you. Did you lie on the road? For time and time again, did you? I did not. You did not. No. All right. When you were arrested with this Lindbergh ransom money, you had a funny daughter, Bill. Lindbergh ransom money, did they ask you worry about it? Did you lie to him or did you tell him the truth? Did you lie to him or did you tell him the truth? I said nothing to him. You lied, didn't you? Guys, that was an amazing show. We had an inside job. We followed the money and we finally solved the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. What a relief. I'm glad that you went deep in the archives for us, Lee, because that, that really helped us out. By the way, stay out of there for a while. I uh, I, I did use I did use the bathroom. I left right. the left the fan on though. Right. Well, uh, let's get our story straight before we call the cops. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I pooped um... out the Lindbergh baby. Sars. <laughs> uh, next time, go out the window. <laughs> so, guys, we run a very popular conspiracy comedy podcast, and we got fans up the wazoo. We just got fans. Fans for days. We got a lot of phone calls this week. But here's what I really want to point out, fans. If you go to our iTunes uh, selection, fuck, what is it called? If you look up Inside Jobs on iTunes and you find our page, there's an option to review the show. There's an option to give us five stars. Yeah, there's basically an option to give us five stars or be an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) It's one or the other. I think most of you should choose to review us with five stars. Yeah. I would like to thank anyone who has taken the time to go on there and write us a review because it does really help out. And even if you just click the five stars and don't write the review, that's also great. Or if you sign on to your friend's, uh, if you're on your friend's computer... Go on his iTunes and give uh, give us five stars from his account. Yeah, have what you been doing? Asshole? Have you been doing that, Gene? Just like grabbing people's iPhones and giving us five stars. All, that's where all of our ratings have come from. So <laughs> it's just you on different people's <laughs> cell phones. The different people's computers. But we are we do have a bunch of fans who have been calling in. Again, that is just me in a different voice. <laughs> yeah, that's my dad doing his Jack Nicholson impression. Sorry, oh, guys. It's Jack a... Nicholson didn't actually call us. I was so excited. Um, but Brian always takes the Jack Nicholson uh, messages and brings them up an octave to be Christian Slater messages. <laughs> yeah, which big deal. Who cares that Christian Slater is calling us yeah, that guy's and wants got to hang but, out? He's got nothing but time. Yeah. They're not making um, true romance, too. But no, so we have a, we have a hotline. It's 413-225-1963. And we got a really good call. So I am going to play that for us now. Hey, Brian, Gene, and Lee. This is Jimmy in L.A. 
And uh, I love the show. I'm a big fan. And I had some topics to suggest for featurettes. Um, they are the moon landing, uh, 9-11, since the show is sort of named after that, and uh, the Biggie Tupac murders. I'd love to hear about all of those, or any of those. So I'll keep listening, and I'll see you later. Bye. Man, that was that was Jimmy from L.A., and he had some great suggestions. Wow, thanks, Jimmy. Um, by see you later, do you mean that like you're watching us from our windows or something? Oh, my God. He might be inside the building right now. He's in L.A., Gene. You need to watch out most of all. Oh, man. What if it's my roommate, Jim? E. Jim E. Mr. <laughs> Enigma. <laughs> Mr. Riddler. <laughs> Bruce Batman. I, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, he's got some great uh, ideas. I feel like the 9-11 episode, when we get to that, is going to just be the hugest thing. Yeah. We're almost afraid to tackle it right now. Like, we want to be on top of our game. Like, ob- like when we first started talking about doing this podcast, uh, 9-11 was, like, basically the inspiration. It was the very first thing we wanted to talk about. Um, it takes a tremendous amount of restraint on uh, me and Brian's part to mention anything but 9-11. Yeah, in, in, our, in our day-to-day lives. In our day-to-day just... lives. Like, we have to remind ourselves to say something other than... Yeah, I actually got, this is a true story, I got in trouble with my boss on a business trip for talking, making 9-11 jokes on the plane. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. But yeah, so I think like we might save that for the anniversary. Yeah. When's that again? Uh, I think it's in the summer. Okay. Um, Wait, the anniversary of the show or the anniversary of (laughs) 9-11? Didn't we start the show on 9-11? I think we did. Yeah, in fact, if you go back to the first episode, we're like, we're talking about Abraham Lincoln, and then Brian goes, oh, wow, did you see the see on the news? A tower got hit. Yeah, 12 <laughs> years ago. Jesus Christ, before we, I before I met you. <laughs> we're doing one episode a year. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, the moon landing is also uh, on the docket, and the oh, yeah. Gideon Tupac, I haven't, I hadn't even thought of that, but that's a pretty good one. Yeah, that that one's great. Um, who, 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 which rapper do you prefer, Biggie or Tupac? Um, I prefer not listening to rap music, so... <laughs> well, you like fucking they're, they're Broadway different. musicals, so yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. I thought Biggie and Tupac were the same guy. That's the conspiracy. Yeah. Follow the money to the phone booth where Biggie turns into Tupac and vice versa. <laughs> we should do the conspiracy about how Snoop Dogg now does reggae for some reason, and he's Snoop Lion. Yeah, let's do the conspiracy about what the fuck happened to Snoop Dogg. But yeah, no, I think those are all very good, and thank you so much, Jimmy, for calling in. If you would like to call in, I'm going to repeat that hotline number. It's 413-225-1963. And if you would like to get in touch with us via email, it's insidejobscast at gmail.com, and that's insidejobscast.com. Or you can also tweet at us, at insidejobscast. The person who most often tweets at us on there is uh, Sheree. Your fiance Lee. No, oh, yeah. She also tweets like news people from like various news stations. Man, Brian, we gotta get fiancés. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 
so we that have we get, to get fiance so that we get so that we get more followers on twitter <laughs> people ask us when we're getting married and this is always my stock response I'm like well we got a lot of stuff to do she's got to finish her broadcast journalism school and i need to solve the kennedy murders so yeah and people are like ah, ha, ha, ha. and then she'll be like he's not kidding yeah <laughs> That was a nice uh, yeah. empty gesture you made by proposing to her. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much to everyone for listening. Uh, I thought this was a solid episode. And thank you, gentlemen, for joining me on solving this case. Uh, it was our best episode yet, really. It really was. Yeah. Thank you for thanking us. Because let's face it, you wouldn't be able to solve shit without us, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> Such a fuck up. Yeah, you're welcome, Brian. Well, uh, fans, thank you for listening. We will see you in two weeks. Until then... Follow the money to a gas station in Upper Manhattan. <laughs>